Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.propgmedia.com. First question. Hey, Prop G. Joey here from Indianapolis. I'm 24, and I currently work as a senior acquisitions analyst for an operator and property management company. Our investors are mainly private equity firms that are proactive to the current state of inflation and the federal interest rates. According to the John Burns real estate analysis from April, homeownership is now the largest expense in relation to income at any time in the last 32 years, and rent price growth is up 5% year over year. By raising rates, Burns says the Fed hopes to cool demand so supply and demand come back into balance, but this also indicates a strong demand for rental properties. Are investors in the SFR space on the brink of overfilling the cup on high rents, or do you think we're only at the birth of this, where institutional investors will dominate the space and homeownership will become rare air for first-time homebuyers? I work in the industry, so I see the trends we have placed as we acquire, and on one hand, we're thankfully doing well. But for my own personal financial security and future, I hope to own a home sometime before I'm 28 or 29. Thanks for your thoughts. I first heard you on Paul Rabel's Suiting Up podcast, and I've been following you ever since. I appreciate you being perspicuous in your approach to teaching the public about finances and for your enthusiasm and vulnerability in sharing your stories on your pod and in your books. Cheers to the dog. Uh, Joey from Indianapolis. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the kind words. I, I get the sense Indianapolis would be kind of a fun city to, or an interesting city to make a life in and build a family. But that's just because I applied to the University of Indiana because I saw the movie Breaking Away in like the late 70s, early 80s, and was totally fascinated with the idea of going to a big state school and wanted to go to Indiana. And they rejected me. They rejected me. But anyways, uh, still haven't forgiven them. Uh, I am pretty long real estate. I find it's just an incredible asset. It has scarcity value. It's tax advantage. So I think you're in the right industry. Uh, I understand your fears about not being able to buy real estate. Uh, real estate, according to uh, Philip Schiller, a uh, Yale economist, Nobel Prize winner, he says, look, that the investment or the wealth building attributes 
of real estate are overdone uh, from a pure investment standpoint uh, when you counter in maintenance and everything else that you're just, you know, you, you, a lot of people are better off renting. Having said that, it's sort of forced savings. It's also tax advantage. So I think almost every home I've owned, with the exception of one, has uh, gone up in value. And uh, so I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful way to build security. I, I would be very hesitant right now to lever up too much to go into the market. This feels very frothy. So typically, home ownership kind of I think varies between sort of sixty two and sixty eight percent. And when it gets above kind of sixty five, that usually signals it's getting a bit frothy. And right now it's sixty six percent. That's up from sixty four point seven in twenty nineteen. Uh, according to the Washington Post, nearly one in seven homes sold in America's top metropolitan areas went to investors. So that's what the fear is. I don't know if that's a, necessarily a bad thing, though. Data from Redfin showed that the share of American homes sold to investors hit a record high 18%. So that's almost one in five. During the last three months of the year alone, investors bought about 80,000 homes worth $50 billion. So that's bad on this part. But if shit gets real, the best place to buy an asset is from a forced seller. So a corporate orphan, an investment fund that needs to get rid of it, or a bank or the city hall. So while I think in the short run, it might be bad, I wonder if in the long run, it creates a lot of opportunity when the market corrects, which it always does. Since 2019, home prices have spiked 30%. Can you imagine that? So again, we flood the market with stimulus. What does that do? It sends asset prices skyrocketing. Who does that benefit? People who already have assets, i.e. old people. Who does that hurt? people who don't have assets yet, like yourself. So I think we need to cut off the fucking heroin here, right? We need to stop the crank. And if the economy goes into a recession, so be it. Guys coming into their income earning years, young men and young women such as yourself, they deserve their shot. They deserve a shot to buy real estate that's been foreclosed. And I'm not saying send the economy into a depression because that has impact on everybody, but for God's sakes, all of this is nothing but thinly veiled, keep me rich. And when I say me, I mean baby boomers. Actually, I'm Gen, what am I, Gen X? I'm Matt Damon, whatever. Yeah, I'm the same age as Matt Damon. Not as talented, not as handsome, but a similar age. Anyways, what have we seen here? Housing inventories declined to less than 1 million units available for sale by January, 2022. There were fewer units available for any other year on record back to 1999. In April, mortgage rates reached above 5% for the first time. That should stop, I would think, the price increase. But we're also trying to get our arms around inflation. Uh, I just don't see any way around it. I, I, it depends. It's very market-driven. It's situational. But I have friends, uh, young people trying to do everything to stretch to buy a home. I'm like, I don't know. I would probably wait right now. Uh, that's not what you asked. Short-term, yeah, it sucks. Uh, it sucks not to be able to buy a home. But long-term, I think the market always corrects. Uh, we are going into recession, I believe. I've never seen a, a, an economy be able to raise interest rates. And just more generally, God, this is a long-winded answer. I apologize. I think you're in a great industry. I think you're in a great city. And you're absolutely going to get there. Uh, imagine you have a house right now and create a fake mortgage payment and start putting it into ETFs or a basket of investments uh, and let those run. Because uh, I worry right now, real estate, and I don't know what it's like in Indianapolis, so it's situational, but you know more about this than I do. But it feels like it's very frothy in the real estate market. Oh my gosh, I need to stop talking. Joey from Indianapolis, thanks for the question and the kind words. Next question. 
Hey, Prof G. I'm Larry, a retired gentleman pixel rancher here in Ventura County, California. Worked in advertising, et cetera, for over 30 years. And being older than you, I get all your jokes. My question is about smartly funding scholarships at universities. I don't mean mega monsters like UCLA or USC either. I graduated from a state university. My late brother got his PhD from UMass Amherst. My focus is on liberal arts, humanities, and design photography. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Hey, Larry from Ventura County. So a retired pixel rancher. I heard your question. I thought, what what type of crop is pixel? That's literally how much I know about agriculture. But I think what you're saying is you're a retired ad man. Uh, so this is a complicated question. Um, in terms of how to fund scholarships, it's sort of, uh, it's unfortunate, but the elite universities are so awash in money that if you get into Princeton, you're kind of, you win the lottery twice because you not only get into a great school, but you can show up to financial aid and say, I can't afford it. And they're like, no problem. We have more money than God and we'll figure out a way to close that gap. I think where America gets better in terms of its universities is the universities that you referenced. And that is Cal State, our junior colleges, our vocational schools, our nursing schools. I was so moved. Um, uh, my last episode uh, that we filmed before the next day, finding out that the network was being unplugged, was I went back to my high school. I went to University High School Charter in West Los Angeles. And I was expecting, uh, I spent the day there with the principal and the kids. I was expecting some big sob story on all these stats on kids failing, dropping out, being addicted to drugs and, you know, not going anywhere. And, and what I found was entirely the opposite. Uh, get this, 97% of the kids are going to graduate and 92% are going to college. And I started thinking about, uh, I'm going to do some major virtue signaling here. I'm going to give away some money to uh, 10 kids and the career of the college counselor there, a woman, a really wonderful woman named Paula Van Dorn, who was really taken with. Um, I said, where do I want this money to go? And this goes to your question of how I think we should fund scholarships. And she said, well, it's up to you. And I said, well, I don't want to give money to the kid going to Stanford or MIT or UCLA or even UCSD. He or she's going to be fine. They're killing it. They're going to track money or they can afford to borrow money. I want the money to go to some kid who's thinking about going to nursing school for two years and is worried that they don't have the money. I want the money to go to someone that's going to Santa Monica College and maybe doesn't hasn't had a remarkable tenure uh, at high school, but thinks, you know, maybe I have, maybe I have remarkable potential or the kid going to, you know, name it Cal State X and just doesn't have the money, doesn't have their shit together at 18. Why? Because I was that guy. I was that kid. So how do we fund scholarships? I think what we need to do is uh, sort of like Warren Buffett's approach to kids and inherited money, give them enough money such that they can do anything they want, but not enough money such that they can do nothing. And I think there's some form of that. And that is, I think right out of high school, we need to give kids enough money such that they can go to college, but not enough money such that they're not smart consumers. They should absolutely pay for some of it. I go back to when I went to college, you, anyone could get to UCLA. I didn't really have much, if any, financial assistance from my parents. But I managed to get through it. Involved one summer literally living off Top Ramen and Bananas. No joke, I lived for 11 weeks off of Top Ramen and Bananas. I love both of those things. And why did I do that? Because if I didn't save $2,800 by uh, fall when school started up again, I wasn't going back for my junior year at UCLA. And guess what? Over the long term, that was really good for me. I'm fundamentally a lazy person. And I began connecting work and saving with good outcomes. And I didn't take for granted 
that I just got to go to college and I could borrow money. I did get financial aid. I was a Pell Grant kid. But I think a certain amount, I would call, I, I would like to see more scholarships for kids coming out of high school. They then become consumers to figure out which colleges deserve their money. Public college, public high schools are where America gets better. I was really moved by the superintendent, uh, uh, Alberto Carvalho, who was described as the LeBron James of the Miami school system, and then uh, shifted over to LAUSD. And he said that, why wouldn't high schools be a rallying point for the community? And I just love that. We're so infatuated with elite universities. I'm the same way. Public education is my thing, but where have I given my money? I've given it to Berkeley and to UCLA, which are outstanding institutions. But do they really need it? Do they really need it? Doesn't Santa Monica Community College really need money more? Doesn't University High School really need really need it more to say to the kid? I, the questions were so raw. I know I'm going on here. This 17-year-old girl stood up, super impressive, super curious, and she just was very honest. And later on the line, said she said, I'm going to nursing school, and I don't know if I can afford it. What do I do? What do I do? So I'd like to see more financial aid coming out of high schools. It says to kids, maybe you don't have your shit together. Maybe you're not going to MIT. Maybe you haven't peaked at the age of 17, but we love you and we see potential in you and your story hasn't been written. So I'd like to see financial aid move back to the senior year of high school as opposed to the freshman year at a university. Thanks for the question, Larry. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This week on The Gray Area, Professor Diana Posulka and I tackle one of life's biggest questions. Are we alone in the universe? What would it take for you to step off the agnostic ledge and say, yeah, aliens are real? Is it a spacecraft landing on the White House lawn? Well, something that was anomalous in 1952 did fly over the White House. And that's one of those cases that is still weird. <laughs> that's This Week on the Gray Area, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Question number three. Hi, Scott. This is Fraser from the Rochester, New York area. And I would love some of your thoughts around building a personal brand. While... Not everyone can be Adam Grant. I believe the rest of us still have an opportunity to make an impact. In my case, for example, I've made some progress in the admittedly niche area of quality manufacturing and management. I've published in the top industry periodical and occasionally speak at global conferences, but I'm not sure what my next best steps are. What is achievable? Uh, what will have the greatest ROI in personal brand? Or what might even generate some supplementary income? Given your relative success in many different media formats, television notwithstanding. Well, what can you share about the challenges in generating weekly, consistent weekly content, uh, progressing from one platform to another, or, or targeting audiences while you move from a niche to a modestly broader audience? Thanks in advance and keep up the great work. 
Uh, Fraser from Rochester, thanks for the thoughtful question. So my last session in my brand strategy class is a session called, and it's the most popular session, The Brand Is You, and that is how do you establish momentum. So many people think about marketing and brand across an inanimate object that they're, you know, the company they work at or the what's the brand of IBM, but they don't sit down and say, what's my brand? So right off, you want to establish, if you can, do sort of a personal audit. And that is personally and professionally, what attributes do I want to be known for? And I have a natural inclination. I'm an empathetic person. I'm a detail-oriented person. I'm a provocative thinker. I'm strategic. I have an incredible sense of style. What is your visual metaphor, right? I've always said, if you like bow ties, wear them every day. If you have big, crazy, frizzy hair, have out of control, crazy, frizzy hair. If you have, if you're in good shape, get in great shape. If you're losing your hair, shave your head. Visual metaphors, identifying some core attributes that you want to reinforce every day in terms of your own behavior. You want to find a medium. And that is right off the bat, what am I good at? There's so many meetings. There's texting, there's emailing, there's writing, there's speaking to large groups, speaking to small groups, there's LinkedIn, there's Instagram. Figure out what medium you are best at and then say, I need to be in the top 1% of that medium. I decided in 2008, I was going to be in the top 1% on Twitter. It's taken me 14 years to aggregate a half a million followers, but it pays off. I then decided I was going to be in the top 1% on LinkedIn. And I invested in that medium. And then I found this emerging medium called YouTube and I started doing videos. So think of yourself as a brand, right? I need core attributes that are differentiated. Think uh, about a logo or visual metaphor. What is it about your person aesthetically that stands out? It can be something as weird or as wearing vests all the time. I don't know what it is, but such that people can recognize you in your peripheral vision. Figure out a media strategy or specifically a channel. What are you really good at? Some people are just give great text. You know those people that are just so good and precise and concise and cogent and funny and know all the memes and know all the symbols and just like they can be really boring in person, but they're like really charming and interesting and you know provocative in terms of texting. Uh, I'm good in front of large audiences. I'm not that good in front of small audiences. I'm also not that good on the phone with people. So I try to calibrate around the things I'm good at. Do you enjoy writing? Writing is powerful in terms of a medium. If you're good at writing, you want to take every opportunity you can to submit articles to different journals because the moment you write something and it's well done, people immediately associate two things with your brand, and that is one, this person is smart, and two, they're well-educated. Now, we have a tendency to think of it as a clock. There's pre-purchase, your reputation, there's purchase, how you behave in person, and then there's follow-up. We overinvest in or we spend 99% of our time thinking about the in-person stuff. Uh, Over-invest, if you can, in the reputational stuff. Get in journals, get published somewhere, get a following on a platform. Now, you have checked the box around one key step, and that is go niche the specific crowds out the general and try and be the man or the woman on LinkedIn or in journals or on Twitter that just constantly puts out content uh, around quality manufacturing in, in management circles. Uh, quality manufacturing. I mean, that's not, I don't even know what that means, but I should know after a few years that you're one of the top six or eight or 10 people. You're going to write about it. You're going to speak about it. Um, I'm a quote unquote thought leader. I have spent the last 30 years starting businesses 22 years ago. I started 20 years ago, 22 years ago. I started focusing on brand and innovation. I've done a ton of research there. Uh, my first class, first time at NYU, I made $12,000 a year. By the way, if there's a community college you could teach that topic at, teaching is a fantastic way to learn about a topic because at the end of the day, 
the teacher is just the best student in the class. They're just kind of one week ahead of their students. That's really what you do when you teach. So if you have the opportunity to do seminars or teach, a few things, a few things once you get to that level. Greatness is in the agency of others. I have eight people working with me at Prof G, people that do my graphics, people that do the videos, people that produce this podcast, people who do research, people who turn the chicken shit that is Scott Galloway into chicken salad. And I'm being humble there. They turn my chicken salad into fucking chicken fricassee cocaine on top of it. I am talented. But the reason I've managed to get scale and the reason why I was paid $150,000 this morning to speak for an hour in front of a group of fintech professionals is because I figured out early on my point of differentiation. I had insight into how technology disrupts traditional industry. I found these new mediums and I pounded away at them up at night, figuring out interesting things to say on Twitter, interesting things to post on LinkedIn. I taught a shit ton. Um, I tried to think of interesting ways to display data using different mediums on emerging mediums, including YouTube. And then as soon as I could afford to, I started investing in a team that could make the whole greater than the sum of its parts. So there are a lot of baby steps you can take. Having a brand is not only deciding who you're for, it's deciding who you're not for. And that's okay. I spoke at a iconic, iconic gathering of a bank and they got pissed off because at the end I made a joke about Adam Newman um, um, walking away with a 10% commission on $13 billion in losses of other people's money. And that offended them because they were involved in that, in that entire fiasco. Okay, so be it. That was probably a bad move. Probably shouldn't insult the people that I'm a guest at. But anyways, processing. I'm literally on processing, Frazier. Thought leadership is a fantastic way to make a living if you're blessed enough. I would be dead by now in any other society but because uh, I have figured these things out, brand associations, the right medium, the right visual metaphors, and also most importantly, most importantly, greatness is in the agency of others. As soon as you have a little bit of money to invest, hire people to do your research, hire people to make your slides sexier, uh, find good editors and make your content really sing. Frazier from Rochester, University of Rochester, Wegmans, Kodak. And there's a third up there. I used to spend time on Lake Canandaigua. I was in love with a woman who was a doctor and her family had a house on a lake. More information than you wanted. Frazier from Rochester, thanks for the question. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please submit a voice recording by visiting officehours.propgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Shagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our associate producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Property Pod from the Vox Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday.